Good morning. Thank you for braving the humidity out here. It's uh, it's a good. Just think of it as like a free sauna. I mean, people pay money to go to those things. You're doing this for free, so um, there you go. We'll embrace it together. Um, well, it's been quite a week uh, for our country, for m- many of us. Um, and particularly for for women, and um, I'm just trying to take it all in, as I'm sure many of you are, asking, you know, what does this mean, Lord, and how do we respond to this rightly? Um, and the priority for us in this moment, though, right? If if you're anything like me and woke up today thinking like. Church is kind of a secondary, if I'm honest, third priority in my mind right now. And yet you're here. We're here. So what do we do? We just have to know that in this moment, God is calling us to be with one another and with him. And that means just seeing each other and recognizing that he's called us together for purpose. Uh, Frederick Beekner gives us a little grace this morning, I think, and when he says, if, you're, if you believe you're a Christian and you can look at each day and say, you know, today is another day to just be a Christian and I can like, you know, go out and in and just not really be challenged day in and day out and just like this upward trajectory day after day. He says, you probably haven't been a Christian very long. Or you have the misconception of what Christianity is. He says, and this is quite poignant the way he says it, but he says, <laughs> when you look at your life uh, and you ask yourself, given what Jesus calls me to, can I do it again today? Can I believe and walk in the way that he's called me to today? Uh, five times out of ten if we're honest, if we're really in touch with ourselves, probably realistically will be a no. Five times out of ten. <laughs> That's what being a Christian and really knowing what Jesus calls us to, waking up and saying, I don't know if I can do this today. And so that being said, there are probably some of us here who feel today is a day for me to just be encouraged to grow in faith. Others of us woke up today and felt, I don't know if I can do this again today. And that's Okay. Let me just begin with just a a brief prayer to settle our hearts um, for God to ask us, um, to tell us he knows exactly where we're at, and that's okay. Let's pray. Father, there's diversity in this room um, that you know uh, of experience, of conviction, of hurt of um, emotion that we bring today for various reasons, particularly for uh, you know, the ways that uh, laws and systems are being created. And it affects particularly just some of us in this room in an unequal way. And Jesus, help us to understand how do you share the burden with one another of whatever we might be feeling or going through. We pray that your 
you would make your church a safe space. And we confess, Lord, that oftentimes the church has not been a safe space for those hurting, those confused, those asking questions, those uh, trying to figure out how to follow you and make sense of the world. And that can happen to any of us not feeling safe at church. And so we pray, Father, that in these high weeks of where being out in the world does not feel safe, uh, shepherd of your sheep, come and shepherd us. Uh, Have your rod and your staff comfort us, discipline us, bring us into a state of just uh, rest and feeding, being nourished with you so deeply Uh, that we would be able to go out into the world with the wounds that we carry and the wounds of others that we will encounter and meet it with grace. That's the most we could ask for for today. Amen. Today we're finishing a series of sermons uh, in the book of Song of Solomon. And we entitled that series, The Way of Love. Uh, It's a theme that we want to think through through this entire year. Uh, the way of love. And uh, we get to the last four verses. And I'll read those for us. This is uh, last week where we left off was kind of the official ending, most commentators believe, for Song of Songs. So this is kind of like an afterthought, a post-credit scene, right? Uh, This is... uh, Yeah, it just leaves us with one final, uh, poignant, um, hauntingly beautiful image of what life is about. We could put it that way. So, hear God's word. She, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. He. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. She. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain's of spices. This is God's word. Author Walker Percy, in his work, The Second Coming, asks this question, is it possible for people to miss their lives in the same way people miss, miss their plane? Is it possible to miss their lives in the same way one misses their plane? And he goes on to describe a figure who experienced that. And he says, not once in their entire life had they allowed themselves to come to rest in the quiet center of themselves, but had forever cast themselves forward from some dark past they could not remember to some future which, which did not exist. And not once had they been present for their entire life so that their life had passed like a dream. Song of Songs is kind of, as we noticed as we went through it, kind of like a dream. But in the end, what you actually find it does is it wakes you up. It wakes you up and it says, do you, 
are you the, actually the one who's dreaming, whose life is passing by, who's not tethered, that you're living and reaching for things, that your story is ambiguous, as Walker Percy is describing this person, your future uncertain, you don't know where you're going in life, you don't know what your purpose is. The Song of Songs gives us a vision for what life is really about. And so here in this final acknowledgement, these final verses of this great love song, you're given this recognition to all the characters that have taken place. They take a final position on the stage, if you will, and you see them take their position and hold their poses uh, before the lights go dark and the curtain falls, so to speak, leaving us with final glimpses that compel us to imagine their trajectory throughout time and eternity. It's supposed to leave you with this sense of, you know, and this is the way the story will forever go, right? Um, We had this quote early in our series, and I'll read it one last time because I think it it conveys the arc of the main protagonist, the main voice, the woman. So Bell Hooks, in her book All About Love, had invited us to see this. She wrote, Love heals. When we're wounded in the place we would know love, it is difficult to imagine that love really has the power to change everything. No matter what has happened in our past, When we open our hearts to love, we can live as if born again, not forgetting the past, but seeing it in a new way, letting it live inside us in a new way. And we can go forward with fresh insight that the past can no longer hurt us. And this is what happens to uh, the woman in the the story of the, the song of Song of Songs, right? The Song of Solomon, which was introduced to us having a damaged soul, Her life uh, was derelict, figuratively speaking, right? She said in the first chapters, my own vineyard I've not tended, right? Due to the hurtful relationships of those around her, namely her family. Her own vineyard, her life she had neglected because of the harassment of those around her. However, as the song closes, right? I wanted to highlight that because there's a contrast here that you need to get, that we need to remember Uh, That's where it started, but see how it ends. Here we have someone who is indeed healed, redeemed, restored, and she compares herself incredibly, ironically, starkly to the riches of Solomon, okay, particularly to his love life. She's using this imagery of vineyards and gardens, right? And she says his vineyards upon opulent vineyards, And she declares with defiant satisfaction, verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman, which literally means owner of much or husband of many. All right, crude translation. And he says, he lent out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring its fruit of a thousand pieces of silver. So like, you know, here he has these vineyards that are just raking in the money. And the imagery here is like, Uh, each of his wives and concubines, a thousand of them, right? You know, hundreds upon hundreds, right? Extravagant, right? Each one, you know, uh, a model in their own right. But she says, my vineyard, my own, uh, my love is, you know, for me to give is essentially what she says here. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand. Go ahead and keep, you know, your, your, your way of life. I don't... Need it? I don't crave it. 
I'm fully satisfied. The hundreds of wives, concubines of Solomon, in all of his sexual and material exploits and pursuits, in all of his deeds and titles, he can't hold a candle, she says, to what she has. And this genuine, pure relationship of love to her and her beloved. Now the deep irony, why, why is this important for us? The deep irony is that um, this is the Song of Solomon. What does he have? He seems to be the, the butt of the joke here, doesn't he? He seems to be the one, the laughing stock. He seems to be the one on the outside. And yet this is a book attributed to in honor of him, impressed upon by perhaps himself, uh, inspired perhaps by him. So the conclusion we must draw from this final dismay of his riches and excess failing him in light of simple genuine love, a life of love, is that this whole song has actually been Solomon's confession. See, in many ways you go into this thinking, oh, this is, you know, a a song in honor of Solomon, or, or this is, you know, one of Solomon's favorite poems, maybe, or this was, you know, I don't know, some kind of, uh, story that that, uh, just celebrates his love. But I think if you read this rightly, this is Solomon's great confession. The Song of Solomon is his remorse over his life, of a life that has passed like a dream. This entire song has been him in a way achingly comparing the simple beauty of a peasant couple, a farming couple, right? She's in the gardens, he's a shepherd, right? faithfully living out their day-to-day life together, free of comparison or greed or dissatisfaction or want. And in this way, you could say he, he recognizes the, the ridiculousness of his own life before God, before the world. In a way, he mocks himself, if you will. He realizes the irony of it all, that despite being given unparalleled wisdom, right? Solomon, uh, his story begins with really him asking God for wisdom and God grants him wisdom greater than anyone else on the planet at that time. But the irony is that the simple life of love and longing for the other has shown him to be the fool in the end, that he is the fool. And yet not to continually bash on Solomon, in his wisdom, he sees that he's been foolish. See, that that is wisdom, when you can actually see that you've made a mistake and own it. In his wisdom, he takes on the teacher's hat one last time and says, is willing to teach anyone who would listen to his life and says, don't be like me. Don't miss the point of life, he says. Love is the greatest, most precious, most valuable fruit, the most delicate vine one may cultivate in all of the kingdom. And the Apostle Paul has told us the very same thing, has he not? Perhaps the Apostle Paul says it the most clearly. Right? He says in 1 Corinthians, if I speak in tongues of men and angels and haven't, have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. Right? If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have and deliver up even my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. The Song of Songs, if we're to hear it rightly, says, 
Do you, is celebrating and saying the most valuable, the most important thing, the priority for your life is love. That the pursuit of love is paramount. That you can have everything else in the world and without this unifying attribute, none of it will last. None of it will make sense. It will be swept away under the rug in the end. Now clearly, clearly, unlike uh, modern help books or self-care uh, TikTok uh, feeds, there's nothing wrong with those. But we're not talking about an ambiguous love. When we talk about self-love and we talk about loving others. The Bible gives us a very poignant and clear definition of what love is. The Bible puts forth that this is not just any kind of love, that it is the love of God in Christ Jesus who came for us in our darkness, in our blindness, who gave up his body and spirit in the, on the cross in crucifixion as a means to quell the injustice that came from our lovelessness in our lives. And he brings a means to soothe us in our restlessness with the peace of God to assure us that we have God as father, as a young parent or a new parent might take a young child and soothe and comfort them. God takes our hearts and we're told that he crushes to dust the stone-like heart that we initially, by our nature, enter into the world with and he gives us back a heart of flesh a truly beating heart, a heart that is woundable, but that is also compassionate. It's able to empathize, a heart that can weep both at beauty and brokenness. A heart that can mourn with those who mourn. A heart that holds all things pure and bright and all that is life with rightful weight. We're given the heart of Christ himself. So the Christian life is all about being filled with the power of love, but more specifically the person of love, Jesus Christ. And this is something so profoundly basic to the Christian life that the Apostle John can say something so blunt as whoever does not love is still in death. You see, the Bible, all through it, again and again, is saying to love is to live and to live is to love. The Christian is someone who must identify with the pursuit of the way of living love. And yes, that means sometimes uh, there is uh, ferocious love, we might call it. Love that does not look so kind, that is not so gentle in tone. When others or your own uh, rights are being impinged upon, or wrong and injustice, or evil is coming in, we are to rightly respond out of a ferocious love, one that puts to death the cause and the root of uh, lies uh, and sin. Well, someone says, yes, but okay, so what does this love look like on a daily basis though and how would you know 
I, I understand that the Christian life is about love, but what do you really mean by that? This is no way comprehensive, but David Brooks in his book, The Second Mountains, uh, says and describes a way of love that appears like this. He says this. He says, when I treat another person as though they were an object, I've ripped the social fabric. When I treat another person as an infinite soul, I've woven the social fabric. He says, whenever I lie or abuse or stereotype or traumatize a person, I've ripped the social fabric. And he says, when I see someone truly and make them feel known, I've woven the fabric. Whenever I accuse someone of corruption without evidence, I have ripped the social fabric. Whenever I disagree without maligning motives, I've woven it. And he concludes, the social fabric is created through an infinity of small moral acts. And it can be destroyed by a series of immoral ones. Now there is a division in our society right now, right? Uh, No matter what your convictions or views are, social fabric has been torn. But if you're asking what does it mean to be in the way of love, it means that we, to some extent, hear that Jesus is, is calling us to one another to be a community that is committed to mending social fabric where there's been tears. And the answers may or may not lie in uh, the American political government uh, and uh, in American politics and law. It may or may not. Uh, those are just a means. What you and I are committed to are the infinity of small moral acts of caring for the other who are, is in front of us and making a difference in their own particular life. The way of love is how we partner with Jesus in the renewing of our neighborhoods and lives. It's part of our vision of King's Cross. The social fabric is what we're talking about here, that we're committed to being weavers and menders in line with the Lord, the master mender of all things torn, Christ himself. Has this love taken root in you? Has it crushed to dust the heart of stone? Is indifference continually the way that you, you are responding to things in life? Evasion, distancing. With a new heart, though, there comes aches. Right? If you're, you know, the first time you work out, after a long time, you're met with all of these aches, but it's, it's this recognition of, of things new there, things alive there. These aches are the aches of the Spirit of God in our hearts, aching out of love for you, for others, for his creation. But above all, perhaps, does your heart ache for God himself? Uh, it is impossible to truly uh, love others without aching for the presence of God himself. It is, and vice versa. 
It's impossible to say that you, you know, long for God's presence without longing for being a minister of mending that social fabric in the world. See, verse 13, the man, the husband, the lover's love, plucks the heartstrings, doesn't he? He says, oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ comes amidst the busyness of work and life. And he knows, well, he knows that you're being pulled in a million different directions. Companions vying for your attention, your voice. He says, for, for, as for me, he says, let me, could, would you could allow me to hear your voice? Would you come and commune with me? Would you come and fellowship with me? Jesus invites us into the secret place. He says, I know that you're surrounded with millions of other things vying for your attention. But this is how you know that you are both loved and are in the process of loving that you hear the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit say to you in different ways and at different intensities, let me hear your voice. Come abide with me. And it moves you into a time of communion with him. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, the boy Shasta's been riding all night, chased by what he believes to be great monsters in the night Um, and just life has been bitter for Shasta and suddenly he senses a presence very near to him terrified uh, so close that he can feel the breath on him and and knowing that it is Aslan the the, the king of Narnia the great lion uh, he begins interfacing with the presence asking what are you and Are you going to just eat me? Uh, Full of terror. The voice finally comes to a point of saying, simply, patiently, tell me your sorrows. Through which transpires the dark night into a bright blue day with singing birds. Jesus says to us, his church friends, Tell me your joys, tell me your sorrows. Let me hear it. Whether it's praise or sorrow, exclamation or sigh, Jesus wants to hear his church's voice. I mean, you know, we were just singing here and sometimes it's hard to sing until you you recognize and you remember. You bring into mindful remembrance Jesus wants to hear his church, his voice, because there's a relationship here. Now her response in the end is breathtaking. It's, uh, it sends us on a different ending than we would have imagined that we might have written for this. In traditional romance stories, we're given the static view of life and love in the form of, and they lived happily ever after, Right? But as one commentator puts it, the Bible is relentlessly realistic, if also wildly hopeful. See, here's how the curtain falls. 
she says to him, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Now, she's inviting him to come to her uh, to renew their their love together, to uh, enjoy the intimacy of love and life together, but the implication is that they're not together once again. Right? We've had moments in Song of Songs where they've been apart, they've found each other, they've been apart, and you'd think that the ending would be and they lived happily ever after together again. But not so. You're actually left with the image of them standing on the edges of the stage, on opposite edges of the stage, calling out to one another. Where's your voice? Let me hear it. Uh, come quickly, my beloved. What is this showing us? It's, we're being shown that living love is anything but static. That it's not that you're given love and you enjoy it for the rest of your life, but love is the active process of life itself. And if you you believe anything else about how love is is lived out, then then you you miss the point of of all of this in, in scripture. So you remember how some of the old Wile E. Coyote and, and Roadrunner cartoons, if, if that might be, I don't know, if people still watch that. <laughs> but uh, hopefully some of us remember, right? And, you know, oftentimes those cartoons would end with like the highway going down the road off into the horizon and you just see them like running, chasing after each other uh, in the pursuit uh, and them disappearing off into the horizon. And that's how, you know, it goes to the end. But the implication is, just, the chase goes on and on and on. And that's actually what is being done here. It's so uh, beautifully crafted so that the ending scene is of life and what life is all about is, in this life, is seeking. That love is in the pursuit in the having and then ever seeking to return again to that place of intimacy and safety, of love and radical acceptance, and then back again in this cycle. She says, make haste, my beloved. And this is, as I said, the ongoing, it's not just a uh, singular, it's an ongoing expression of love. It's caught up in the way Jesus talks about how we're to live life. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the right way, after the good way of grace, after the righteous life, for they shall be satisfied. But you'd be mistaken to think he's saying, blessed are those who are hungry and, and thirst, and then they, they're eat, they eat and they're good. The word is, blessed are those who are ever hungry, who are ever thirsty, for they are ever satisfied. See, I, I, I think sometimes we, we try to because we are afraid of, shall I say, work, because we have a wrong view of work, channel some of Ben Nicka here, that work is, we see work as a curse rather than a blessing, that work is actually the highest happiness because God is blessed of all, all beings and he works and has given us work. We don't see that the pursuit of life and happiness and joy actually comes from active work in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, in our body. See, it's ongoing that we are to stay hungry, if you will, for the presence of God and right life. 
So make haste, my beloved. It is also the way the curtain falls on the Bible itself. Right? I hope you knew I was going here. How could I not? That in the, the very last page of your Bible, or if you scroll to the very end, right, right before it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You have in Revelation chapter 22, the very end, Jesus says these words to his church, his beloved. He says, I'm coming hastily. And the church responds essentially with, make haste, my beloved. What is that? See, Song of Songs ends the same way our story, our, it's telling us how the course of this history is meant to be played out. And if you don't understand that, then you'll never be able to be present in the moment. You'll always think something is wrong and you won't be able to appreciate for what is. See, the haste here is not one of quickness. Hurry up, Lord Jesus. And he's like, I'm, I'm hurrying, I'm getting ready, I'm showering, I'm coming. That's not what it's saying. It's denoting urgency. It's saying, please come how we want you, how we need you so much. And boy, isn't that the right way we should be God should be hearing our voice in this time. God, we need you so much. Our, our society, our world, we need you so much. Our church needs you so much. I need you so much. Come quickly. Come speedily, Lord Jesus. Um, the Book of Common Prayer, which some of us have, have pra- uh, just enjoyed praying through together, actually has, if you follow it super strictly, which it's, it's not... you you can, uh, has four times a day where one would pray these words. Oh God, make speed to save us. Oh Lord, make haste to help us. That's not saying, uh, hurry up and help me. It's saying, oh, there's an urgency here that I'm not even been in touch with or maybe I have that I'm coming to you with now, Lord. Help me in the urgency of just needing your presence. So then here it is. This is a loving life, a circle of seeking and waiting, finding and delighting. And the joy of doing it again and again, deeper and deeper, wider and wider, higher and higher. Ellen Davis in her commentary closes with these, th- this wonderful and clarif- cl- it was clarifying, it brings clarity uh, to our, our faith Uh, on Song of Songs, she says, God never fully satisfies us in this world, but instead continually stretches our desire toward heaven. Not satisfaction, but expansion and purification of holy desire is the surest sign of God's presence with us. In this life it is, we can't get no satisfaction, but we're not meant to. That is when we will see him face to face. That is reserved for when uh, he shall return and all things are made new. Then all of our desires will be realized. But in this life, the way of love, the goal is not satisfaction but in seeking. I'll end with these words as we go to the Lord's table. Um, we remember the past here, uh, what Jesus has done for us. 
the way that he has loved his church. If there's any doubt in anyone's mind of, are we his beloved? Does Christ love his church in this present moment? We need to mindfully bring to remembrance what Jesus has done for us. Beekner says this, the past and the future, memory and expectation, remember, wait. Wait for him, whose face we all of us know because somewhere in the past we have faintly seen it, whose life we all of us thirst for because somewhere in the past we have seen it lived or maybe have even moments of living it ourselves. Remember him who himself remembers us as he promised to remember the thief who died beside him. To have faith is to remember and wait and to wait in hope is to have what we hope for already begin to come true in us through our hoping. Jesus already begins to have us taste satisfaction that is to come as we hope and wait for him now, friends. And he says this in conclusion, this is the hope that what he has done, he'll continue to do. What he has begun in us and our world, he will in unimaginable ways bring it to fullness and fruition. Now in this moment, we can't, some of us might not be able to imagine how God will make sense of all of this, but that would be imaginable. imaginable. But Jesus in unimaginable ways has loved us through allowing himself to be betrayed on that night and taking bread, taking simple signs that would be available to anyone everywhere at all times. He takes bread and breaks it and he says, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, he takes the cup and says, this cup is my blood, the covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you. Unimaginable love coming in an unimaginable way that he would die for us. Won't he be able to make sense of the unthinkable, the bewildering, the disruptive and the damaging of here and now. God, grant us faith to believe that that is possible as we come to your table today. I'm going to ask our elders and diaconate to come and help uh, distribute the Lord's table, the Lord's supper to us. This is a table for those who have been baptized and are followers of Jesus Christ who are practicing in the way of love And maybe that's the thought for you to consider, uh, am I not just a loving person, am I actually living out love? Lord Jesus says, I take this today, would you grant me the strength to practice, to live into that? But most of all, let me hear you say to me, let me hear your voice. So baptized followers of Jesus, participating in the life of the church, would you come and take of this as he gives it to his people?